Our scripture reading today is from 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen. Amen, and welcome to all of you today to what's traditionally known in the church calendar as Palm Sunday. Uh, For all of our guests and visitors, and for all of you who maybe were flash flooded out last week, let's recap what we're doing and where we are. We've been in a series called The Story of the Bible, where we're taking a look at where what we call the Bible comes from and and what the big picture, what the big story is. Because if you're here and you're having a hard time, sometimes we have a hard time, I have a hard time with some of the Bible stories, and you don't know what the big story, the big picture is all about, it's easy to dismiss or ignore those stories all together. But let's recap where we've been so far. So far in our story, in our series that we've seen first, the creation of the world, the catastrophe of sin, the calling of Abraham, the community of Israel, the conquest, the promised land, the crown of Israel and the monarchy, then the corruption, the captivity of the Jewish people, and then the coming of the Christ. And last week we saw the crucifixion of Jesus at the cross. And the cross, again, that's where we finished last week. We looked at the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth and to bring us right back to that point right there and to introduce us as to where we are today. I'll begin like this. Once upon a time, there was no the Bible. Once upon a time, there were no buildings in which people called Christians gathered. Once upon a time, there were no Christian bookstores. There were no Christian bumper stickers. There were no Christian TV shows or networks or televangelists, crazy thought, right? Once upon a time, in one moment in history, there was only the dead body of a failed Jewish rabbi and a bunch of brokenhearted disciples. But then, in one moment, everything changed. In one moment, Jesus of Nazareth, though he was publicly executed on a Friday, he bodily, literally raised, was raised from the dead, resurrected on a, on a Sunday, and everything changed, and he began to appear to hundreds and hundreds of people. And, and sure, there was like this rumor that was going around that his disciples, a bunch of fishermen, somehow overpowered a Roman cohort, 
That was a joke, by the way. And stole the body. Why was there a rumor? Well, it was because there was no body. The tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away. And so in that moment, Jesus proved to his followers and a bunch of his doubters that he was who he claimed to be. God come in the flesh to save humanity. And as now his followers preach this, as they prove this, now something happened in history which had not happened before and has not happened since. The people of Jesus, unlike every other faith system in history, the people of Jesus were not the product of one single ethnic group. They were not monoethnic. But the first church was truly multi-ethnic. They were from places all over the known world, from Europe to the Middle East to Africa, all in the first few decades of the Jesus event. And as these people gathered now in the wake, uh, in the overflow, in the power of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, they now were called the church. There's your C word for the day. They were the church. They were the ecclesias. That's the Greek word. They were the called out ones, the ones that God had gathered together to show to the world what true human community looked like. And now as this Jesus movement, as it grew and it grew, it grew so fast. As it grew, it began to take up the the Hebrew scriptures and they began to go looking in there for Jesus because Jesus himself said, all the law and the prophets are really about me. And as these new ecclesias began to grow, they also began to need uh, eyewitness accounts of a life of Jesus. And so many of the eyewitnesses began to write what we now call the Gospels. And they began to circulate those among the ecclesias, the churches. And again, as these churches began to grow and grow and so fast, they needed life, they needed love, they needed leadership. And so some of the eyewitnesses also began to write what we now call epistles or letters. We just read a part of one of those a moment ago. And one of those epistles was written by someone by the name of James. And James, you may know, was actually the brother, half-brother of Jesus of Nazareth. And James believed his own brother was the son of God. Did you catch that? I mean, some of you have brothers. What would it take for you to believe (laughs) that your own brother was the Messiah, Savior of the world, Son of God. Whatever it would take for you, James got that plus more. He got undeniable proof. I don't know, something like a death and a real resurrection. James got that undeniable proof, and he gave his life for claiming that his brother was the Son of God. And this Jesus movement, it grew and it grew and it grew so fast, all from one little epicenter of one man, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, being resurrected from the dead. So we should ask, well, how fast did the church, the ecclesia, the Jesus movement grow? How fast did the church grow? Well, I'll ask it like this. How many Christians do you think there were a hundred years after the birth of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, historians estimate in the Roman Empire there were roughly 25,000 Christians by 100 AD, from 0 to 25,000 in 100 years. Remarkable. But how many Christians, let's flash forward two centuries, how many Christians do you think there were now 300 years after the birth of Jesus, after three centuries of persecution? Well, again, historians estimate that there were now roughly 20 million Christians in 310 AD. You ought to say, wow. Well, <laughs> wow. How did they do this? How do they do this? 
Let's flash forward 1,600 years and move halfway around the world. When Mao Zedong came to power in China in 1949, uh, the church in China became his enemy. There were a little more at the time, a little more than 2 million or so Christians in China. And over the next 30 years, Chairman Mao made it his goal to eviscerate to demolish, eradicate the Christian church, uh, to do away with those he considered to be disloyal to the state he called the the church, the Christians, people of hate, of hatred towards the Chinese government. He banished all foreign missionaries. He took every church building and made it government property. He killed nearly every senior level church leader. He killed or imprisoned nearly every, every second or third level Christian leader. He banned all meetings of the Christians with a threat of death or torture. And he went on and on and on from there. It was truly despicable and evil. But then when Mao died in 1979 and something called the bamboo curtain was lifted and foreign missionaries began to go back into China, they expected to find what you and I might expect to find. They expected to find the church there in tatters, uh, on life support, barely hanging on if it existed altogether. But they found exactly the opposite. They found during that same 30-year period, the church in China had grown from 2 million Christians to 60 million Christians. And as of 2016, there are now estimated to be 120 plus million Christians, all while being illegal, all while being persecuted, all while being murdered and imprisoned for their faith in Christ. From 2 million to 120 million, now 10% or more of the Chinese population with no sign of slowing down all in 70 years. How did they do it? We see the same thing happen again in the 1700s in England with John Wesley, the rise of Methodism. By his death, one in almost 30 people, one out of every 30 people in England, had become a Christian and followed Jesus in his church, the Methodist church. How did he do it? The same thing is happening with churches uh, like ours all over the world today in what would be considered, broadly speaking, the Pentecostal charismatic movement. It began in Los Angeles, California. Finally, something in America, right? With a one-eyed black man by the name of Willie Seymour who had been excluded from faith and fellowship church by his fellow white believers. He experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the power of God transformed his church and began to spread. And by 2006, there were half a billion charismatics in the world. And in 30 years, by 2050, that number is expected to double. How did they do it? And this church, by God's grace, has grown from just a little more than 150 people in the summer of 2010 to nearly 1,400 people today. How have we, how have you done it? Well, on one hand, there are a number of factors that we have in common with all of those other four Jesus movements. Let me give you four uh, commonalities. First, while we're not, thankfully, persecuted like they were, and some are, we are, in some ways, many ways, still on the margins of the broader American culture because we believe in exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ and to the authority of the Christian scriptures above our lives and every other faith system. And second, we're also on the margins of the broader church culture because of our multi-ethnicity, which brings with it a challenging level of political diversity as well. So in some ways, many ways, we're not the status quo, we're not the norm, we're on the margins in some ways, and so were they. Second, while our facility is very important and very helpful, and it is, how many glad you didn't have to come set up speakers today? Yeah, our facility is not at the center of our identity, and for every Jesus movement, it never has been either. 
So listen, and don't get nervous about this if we ever did need to raise money for something. Again, don't get nervous. This is not a preemptive strike. All right. (laughs) This facility still won't be the center of our identity. No more than in your home and your family. No more than your apartment is your identity or your house is your identity. It's simply the place where your family gathers. And third, we don't over-professionalize ministry. Love education, yes. Love excellence, yes. But we try to develop ministers, non-professional ministers, every level of leadership. And fourth, fourth, we actually make it hard to join the church. We do. Some of you know this. Some of you are in membership and foundations. You just finished it. You saw like, man, six weeks, seven weeks. And like, what is the deal? Now, before in that early church, other movements, you're like, yes, I'm glad they made it hard. Maybe you're not saying that. (laughs) It's all right. So don't get grouchy. We make it hard here. It's actually good for us, for you. See, each of these movements, they've always had these things in common, more than these, but not less. And if you study church movements, you'll see these trends. But there's actually more than this, more than these that we see that we have in common with these Jesus movements, with our charismatic Methodist Chinese brothers and sisters, and what we have in common with them, and how we've arrived today In our final Sunday, can you believe it? In our three-service structure, what we have in common at a deeper level is what we see all the way back in that first century church. In this letter, we're going to take a look at called 1 Thessalonians, written to a Christian ecclesia, a Christian church suffering in the Roman Empire with persecution and death. And this letter we're going to look at, again, called 1 Thessalonians because there were Second Thessalonians also. Multiple letters written to this ecclesia by the Apostle Paul, who was a converted Jew, now functioning as Jesus' main global brand ambassador, and began ecclesias, churches all over the Mediterranean basin and the Roman Empire, including the city of Thessalonica. And in this letter, which is the very, very oldest we have from Paul in the New Testament, perhaps the first letter, the first epistle he ever wrote, written in 4950 AD, only 15 years roughly after the Jesus event, Paul tells them what can keep them going and growing in the midst of all their challenges and their suffering and their persecution. They were asking him, Paul, how can we keep going? How can we keep growing? And he writes them, and we're going to see that he tells them, he tells them that you've already got the secret. You've already got the secret. It's in your midst. He's saying you've already got the secret sauce for a healthy, growing, enduring church. And he's about, for us, thankfully, to list out the ingredients. So to answer the question, how did they do it? How have we done it? What are the ingredients then of a healthy, growing local church? Let's take a look. Here's how the letter begins. Verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Do you know why he writes this, puts it like this? Here's what I think. I think he writes this way because he is remembering their story together. He's remembering their story together. Go read back in the, in the book of Acts, I believe chapter 17, and you'll see what Paul went through with the Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica. Uh, they had suffered together. He, he was betrayed together. He almost lost his life to a Jewish mob there. He escaped barely with his life. He went through hell with those people, and here's the point, because Paul had been through hell with those people, Paul loved those people. So let me say this to you as I briefly remember our story together today. 
I thank God for you. I mention you in my prayers. I love you. All of you. Yeah, you're new. I love you too. I love us. I love this church. I've spent 18 out of the last 20 years of my little life in this church. When we've been through so much together in those first nine years, there was a lot of hell. A lot of people in this church went through my life laughing because she lived through most of it. Some of that was, most of it was with me. All right, anyway. There was sin in our leadership, arrogance, power struggles, hypocrisy. Then God broke us free from all that through his mighty hand and outstretched arm through the work and faith and prayers of so many of you. And now the last nine years, they've had their ups and their downs too. But God has brought us here. He's made a way, we sang today. We have a great story together. And I want to remember that. And I don't want to forget that. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. I love who you have been to me and to my family. Carrie and I love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving my kids. Thank you for letting them just be who they are. No labels coming here and growing up here. My children love this church. It's like a second home to them. Some of you say, well, that's true. I see them running around here all the time, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You've made us more like Jesus. Help me see my blind spots, so many blind spots, and I'm sure in the future you'll help me to see others as well. Become more Christ-like. Isn't that the goal? It is. Karen, I love you. And if you would have told me back in 2010 that we'd be starting four services permanently next week, I don't know that I would have believed you. But we, here we are. We've grown. How? How? Has it been, say, our amazing worship team? Because they are great, aren't they? They're amazing. Yeah, they help us, they lead us there. Has it been some killer preacher? You're like, no, I know that's not right. Has it been a convenient mm, check-in system for our kids? Has it been a really accessible app you can download from the App Store? Has it been our abundance of parking? No, no, it's not that. No, Paul, Paul here, when he's thinking about, when he's listing what's at the core of a growing, thriving, healthy church, he puts this at the top of the list. He says, we remember before our God and Father, he says, your, here's the word, work. (laughs) Produced by faith. He says, what's made your church great? All your hard work. Sweat and toil, laboring. He said, how hard you work at being church, doing church. You think, why is he thanking them for their work? Let me tell you a story. A few years ago, I've told this before, but this was a defining moment in my life a few years ago uh, when I was asked to come back here and be the lead pastor. First, before I came here, I went back to where I, I grew up and I went to say goodbye to the little church I had grown up in that had supported uh, my family financially for many years. During all the years, we were campus missionaries at the University of Texas. And this church and many others had supported us. And so I wanted to go back there and tell them thank you and sort of a goodbye in a way. And so the pastor invited me to come and to share briefly for a couple of minutes and just tell the congregation, thank you. And when I had finished, and when I had concluded, something I had never seen in more than 20 years, in the first 20 years of my life, being a part of that church, something I had never seen before happened. When I concluded, now, suddenly, out of their seats rose this whole group of short, white-haired old ladies. And they began to make their way up front, silently, and wordlessly, I thought, man, I am in for it now, right? Silently, wordlessly, they made their way to the front. And without a word, they turned me around, pushed me down on my knees, laid their hands on me, and began to pray for me. Now, 
This does not happen in a United Methodist Church. You don't get up. You don't raise your hand. You don't say amen. You don't say thank you. You are frozen and locked in that seat with your thing in an upright locked position, seatbelt on for the 50 minutes of the service, and you don't deviate from that. Right. This is happening. And they began to pray for me. No one could hear them except for me, them, the pastor, and Almighty God. And here's what they began to pray. Things like, God, we thank you. Like I wasn't even there. God, thank you for Morgan. Thank you for letting us be a part of his life. Thank you for allowing us to see him grow up. Lord, it's been such a privilege. We thank you for this moment right now. Who are these women? They have been my Sunday school teachers all through birth, elementary, youth, and high school. Then my Sunday school teachers for the last 20 years, there were women who had prayed for me, who loved me. There was old Miss Christine Burkett with her five foot two, all of her strong spiritual self, brown hair. She had one verse. She taught me every single week of my life in the King James only. Thank you, Matthew six thirty three. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I heard it every week, every week in Sunday school, every week in the children's sermon. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, I can't even read that verse without seeing her face, thinking about her words. Now, on one hand, I'm nobody special. And yet, on the other, I like to think I'd helped a few people along the way over the last 20 years since then. Where did I learn a lot of that stuff from? It was, here's the word, the work of these women in children's ministry produced, here's the word, by faith. Why is it by faith? It's by faith because when you give up your time and your energy in any area of this church, but especially in children's and youth ministry, like so many of you have, you don't know what's going to happen. It's got to be by faith. You don't know what the lives of those children will be or become. You, you, you just say, oh, I'm changing diapers, or you just, you know, rock babies, or you, you teach blessed, you know, group of fourth grade boys, you know, with energy and candy to burn, right? Sugar that are hopped up on them. They're like kids in youth ministry. All they do is drink radioactive orange soda and eat cheap pizza every day of their lives. You know, they're coming in with that. You think I'm just helping them. But listen, you're not just doing that. When you rock a baby, change a diaper, teach a kid, it's not just a baby or a person. It's a potential future world changer. It's the next theologian or missionary or coach or teacher or scientist or who knows what. Or you're not just teaching children or youth. You are shaping the next... Uh, and broadcast anchor with a mic in her mouth or an athlete with a platform or the next, maybe Susanna Wesley, next stay-at-home mom who raised herself, John Wesley, a revolutionary for Christ. You do work produced by faith. You believe that what you do really matters. You work real hard at it. And listen, yeah, church, church nerds, <laughs> church nerds like me who's job it is to know this stuff, I know, you ought to hear that when people believe, it's statistically proven, it shows that a church, when it gets to be this size overall, when a church grows, the percentage of people who work hard, who volunteer, or team members, that number's supposed to drop, and it does. When you're a church this size, it's supposed to be between 10 and 20 percent. But here, thankfully, because of you, more than 50 percent of our adults here, our team members here, they volunteer, they do work produced by faith because they believe what they do really matters. And again, when you get to be our size, the number of people involved in a smaller group, a small community is supposed to drop and be less than a third of the people in a church this size. But here, thankfully, it's at and above two thirds of all of us at Mosaic are in that. Our groups continue to grow. Group leaders continue to grow. And make no mistake, being a part, being committed to a small group, community group, is is work. It's just work. Why? Because you're doing the work of faith. It's love, isn't it? Which covers a multitude of sins. 
which you need when you walk with people closely. But you just do it because you believe that being a part of a, a Jesus community is part of what he's designed you for. And if you only come here and sit in rows but never sit in circles, you'll never become what God has made you to be. The point is we've maintained our identity, who we've been through multiple stages of growth, and we've got no reason to believe anything will change going forward. And, because you know this was coming, there's one more way that I'm going to ask you to consider doing some work today. That's through which service you come to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you just decide you're going to attend that 10 a.m. only because it's convenient, that's not hard work. That's not First Thessalonians 1 church. Uh, and now, I, listen, I'm so glad you're here. Really, I am glad you're here. And let me tell you something. If it were not for you, if it were not for this group right here, talking to you, this third service right here, so many of you have been committed and faithful and just, I would, rock stars sounds like, man, less than scriptural somehow, but I'll say it, amazing people. We would not be at the place where we are. So thank you, third service. We pitched this vision to you years ago, and you stuck with it, and stuck with it, and stuck with it. So thank you. But if you say, man, man, 10 a.m., man, that sounds real nice. And one o'clock sort of messes with my schedule. I know. I know. It might be hard work. That's what this is about, because hard work makes a church Great. Listen, this church never has been. It never will be built on the gifts of a few, but on the sacrifice of many. We have grown. We will grow because of hard work from faith. So well done, Mosaic, and thank you. But there's not just work produced by faith. Paul goes on and says there's another mark of a healthy, growing church. He puts it like this. He says there's a kind of a labor prompted by love. Now, if you think, well, this is sort of a variation on a theme. He's just saying the word work again. He's not. You dig a little deeper. You realize it's not the word ergon for work. It's the Greek word kopos for painful, toiling labor, the labor of a mother in childbirth. Totally different. Paul says, I remember you're laboring. You're toiling to give birth to something in the world, to bring new life in the world. You're in labor like a mother, Paul says. To bring something new into the world and in your city. And Paul says, I'm so proud of you. So we ought to ask, well, what are we laboring? What are we toiling for here? Here, let me take a stab at it. You may have heard it before. You need to hear it again. We are laboring to change the city and to change the way even people view the church. Because we don't think the city, excuse me, just needs, and I'm excited about this part, another church. Although I'm grateful, hear me, I'm grateful for every church that's here. We co-labor, support, love every church. But I think the city needs another kind of a church. I believe this, a church that isn't just politically liberal or politically conservative, but politically engaged. A church that's socially conscious and expresses the gospel in word, yes, but also in deed. A church that loves both the grace of God and the holiness of God. A church that has an intentionally diverse expression, a plurality of leadership, a church that doesn't say its focus is either on only the unchurched or only on the church, but wants both. A church that is both passionate and deep, where you don't have to check your emotions or your brain at the door. A church that has the fireplace of church history. We're a part of something larger, but it has the fire of the Holy Spirit in it. A church that is current, yes, but it's not current events driven. Not just another church, but another kind of a church a church, therefore, that makes disciples of Jesus Christ through the core values of worship, community, and mission in a multi-ethnic, multi-generational context. And to do this, friends, it's sometimes painful, toiling labor. It's painful to say to people sometimes, I've had to, I know you want to be a part of this. 
but we're not the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary Club or the baseball team or the high school you know, gym club. All those things are great. So, so glad for them. I and mean, that's you if that's... But this is an ecclesia. This is a church of who? Jesus Christ and what he says in his word is eternal. And therefore, everything that goes against that is eternally out of date. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. And though our culture presses us just to assimilate or accommodate, like every culture has pressed every ecclesia since the empty tomb to today, we won't do that. We can't do that. Why? Oh, because we're called to labor, to bring something into the world that looks different. It looks different. We have different vision, and we have to labor in a way that's different. So well done, Mosaic, and thank you. We work because we believe. We labor because we love. But Paul says there's one more mark of a healthy, growing church. He says you've got endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul uses the word hope in his letters, it's way different than how you and I use it. How we use the word hope today is impossibly wishy-washy. When we use the word hope, I use the word, word hope, I say stuff like this. I say, I hope that the Texas Rangers win the World Series this year. I know it's not going to happen. Carrie says, every year you hope this. I know. Every year I hope this. Every year it doesn't happen, and it's not going to happen this year. We say things like, I hope I can get that car on sale, or I hope my kids sleep through the night, maybe. You know, or I hope my roommate does her dishes. Doubtful. But the way we use hope, it's impossibly wishy washy. But hope in the New Testament always has to do with the future state of being. Hope in the Bible is confident, expectation of a victorious future, a confident expectation of a victorious future. Hope always has, therefore, one eye on heaven. One eye on heaven. Paul's saying, you keep it on, keep it on, can't stop, won't stop. You're enduring because you believe that heaven's watching, that heaven's coming to earth one day through Jesus. And what you're doing now, when you work and when you labor, is making, at a fundamental level, heaven larger and hell smaller. And so I want to say the same thing to you and me today. For those of you who have been here for years. For those of you who have been here when we were just one service, holy cow, what was that like? Or for when we were just two services. I know for many of you, many for us, the thought of like four services, it's really hard. And listen, it's hard for me to think about because I've got to preach for, you know, four times. But again, that betrays some language there because someone said to me the other day, how do you feel about having to preach four services? And I responded gently to them, which I always do because it's me. I said, I don't have to preach four services. I get to preach four services. I said, are you kidding me? Miss Christine Burkett told me to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that doesn't mean we're doing this the right way or church ought to do this or we won't do it differently one day. But I don't have to do anything. I get to do a lot of stuff. Why? I got one life to live for Jesus. You got one life to live. I hope we would spin it in pursuit of the kingdom of God. And still, and still, yeah, I know, I know it can be hard to think about going to four services for two reasons. One, because it requires a kind of a change. But listen, don't things that are alive, don't they change and grow? They do, which means healthy things change and grow. As an adult, I hope you grow still, mature. We grow up into faith and maturity. Yes, we're not changing because something's wrong. 
We're changing because something is good. But second, we can also struggle with getting larger in the same way that you can feel sad when you're, when you, for those of you who are parents or your aunties or uncles or godparents, if a, that child you love, you know, just gets older and grows a little bit and you think you're sad. But why would you get sad? That's God's plan for them to grow up, right, and to grow older. It would be strange if we resisted that process. And so God's designed for us to grow. And listen, while we can, while we should, while I will always remember with fondness, what we used to be, what God is asking of us now is no different than what he asked of us then. It's just to keep following him, keep following him. And that means change always, sometimes size, sometimes times, all that. But we're going to endure and press through. Why? It's because like these people in Thessalonica, we've got heaven in mind when we love people now. We've got heaven in mind when we love people now because there's more joy, Jesus says, in heaven When one sinner repents, more joy when one sinner repents than there is when 99 righteous people are hanging out, feeling good about what size they are. And if we just say, hey, I'm good with what size we are, we're no different than that elder brother who refuses to go after the lost son, right? Uh, We ought to be after the lost son, the lost sheep, the lost coin. And I hope you feel like that too because we need to grow more. Because here's why. Because we have some problems, I know you're saying, tell me about it. A lot of problems here, but especially problems in our first two services. And some of you have experienced that many weeks, most weeks. We have over full classrooms. Not good with children because we want to love your children well. Especially also, we want to take care of our team members who serve. And all God's children's team members said amen. And many weeks, there's no place to park first or second service. We have repeated, confirmed sightings of people coming in, circling and circling and driving off. And we don't want that. So we've got some problems. But hear me. Here is the biggest problem. The biggest problem is there are still people in this city who do not know Jesus. Still pity, don't know Je- the city don't know Jesus. And as long as there's one person in the city who does not know Jesus, our church is still too small. The church of Jesus is still too small. So I hope we would be joyful about people who come and know him. Why? Think about it. If we really do this, work by faith, labor by love, endurance with an eye on heaven, who are we really looking like? Paul tells us, verse 6, says, Thessalonians, you worked, labored, endured, and therefore you became imitators. I mean, it literally means to mimicked. You look like us and the Lord. Just because you've done church like this, he says, you look like Jesus. Why? Because didn't Jesus come to earth and work. He did. He said, I am always working, even as my father is always working. Didn't Jesus do loving labor like a mother on the cross to bring us, his redeemed children, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, into the world? Yeah, he did. And didn't he for the what? Joy set before him. What was the word? He endured the cross, scorned its shame. What was the joy? He was seeing you and me in the Ecclesia, the church of Jesus, grow up. It was for the glory of God, his Father. So let me tell you again, well done, Mosaic. And thank you. Next week, we're going to celebrate Easter, celebrate the resurrection. I think, I hope, maybe blow your minds a little bit as to what a day like that can look like. It's going to be great. But listen, I know you're probably going to be here next week. So here's what I'm going to tell you when we need you. 
the week after. <laughs> the, I know you're going to be here next week. Please be here the week after. You say, does he just want me to be? Yes, I do just want you to be here. It's going to help you, going to help us. But, but, but today, thank you. Well done. Good and faithful servants. Have we grown? A lot of hard work <laughs> by faith. A lot of labor with love and endurance with the hope of heaven. I believe our best is yet to come.